Hi, everybody. My name is Benoish, and I'm a member of Al-Anon. It's kind of strange, isn't it? Everybody just bails on you. I uh, really want to thank the committee for asking me personally to come and share your podium and uh, especially to ask an Al-Anon to share your podium. That it means so much to me because when I first came in this fellowship, I'm not real sure who helped me most, the Al-Anons or the alcoholics. Um, I came in in Lubbock, Texas, born and raised there, uh, Lubbock County. Uh, I came in this fellowship February the 7th of 1969. My home group was the Central Group. My home group today, I do live in Los Angeles. And yes, it is the land of fruits and nuts. It really is. Uh, And my home group is the Stepped Up group. We meet on Mondays and Thursday nights. We're right by LAX Airport. So if you're ever there, please give us a call and we'll see that you get to a meeting. My committed AA meeting is the Pacific group on Wednesday nights. And there's plenty of us that will take you there. I want to thank Megan, uh, especially Megan. Um, she picked me up at the airport yesterday and was so kind. Uh, she drove from here all the way to, where is it, Jacksonville, that where I flew in? And uh, picked me up and, you know, it's one of those dreary, dreary stories, airplane ride stories that would bore you all to death. But I didn't get my luggage and we were there for a long time and we just got here in enough time for her to run home and change clothes and jump up behind this podium. So I really want to thank you, Megan for above and beyond the call of duty and to Norma and Colleen they've been so gracious and so kind and uh, took us to Megan's restaurant last night we made fools of ourselves if you haven't eaten over there I highly suggest you go eat some fish and then that what is it spoon fed or spoon chocolate hot chocolate spoon something (laughs) it will set you free oh man oh man (laughs) Whoa! <laughs> it's always a pleasure, always a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. I had three major alcoholics in my life and so many minor alcoholics, I can't even count them. Uh, I love alcoholics. I love them. Prefer them sober, but I love alcoholics. Uh, <laughs> now, I was thinking one day, there has not been one day of my life that there hasn't been active alcoholism in my family. Not one. And I hate the disease of alcoholism. I hate it with every fiber in my being. I hate it. My problem is I love the alcoholic. So I have to stay in these meetings on a regular basis to separate those two things. I guess I better clean up Sheila's mess last night too. She doesn't remember that exactly like I remember some of that stuff. (laughs) I love that girl as much as a human being could love another human being. She's not my... I didn't give birth to her physically, but we have been soulmates looking for each other since the day she was born, I'm quite sure. She is my spiritual child. I love her. Um, I came from Lubbock County, and it's very boring in Lubbock County. There ain't nothing in Lubbock County, nothing. 
uh, some cows, some mesquites, and a lot of honky-tonks. That's it. And I came from a very poor, uneducated family. I was uneducated, a high school dropout. So the only thing I was looking for from the time I can remember is something to do. <laughs> Got to go do something, and there's just nothing to do. You know, when you're a kid, you go out to the cemetery and run around and play and hanky-pank, and that's about it. And uh, My brother broke his neck when I was a really young girl, and it changed our lives forever. My father lost his little used furniture business, and we became poor, and, and the house was always stinking, and fighting was going on there and it was just it was terrible my brother w was not privy to many of the things medically that they have today and his skin rotted and they put this brown junk over the skin and the flesh and it just smelled bad in there there was you know he had what they call a texas catter and it was rubber and the stench would stay in there and not anything against my brother it, it, it just smelled bad but due to all that medical stuff so i stayed outside all the time and I would listen to my parents fight over it and fight over money, and it was just terrible. Some church people came once, and I remember, and they brought a bunch of food and sacks. You know, they just brought food in and food in and food in, and they was putting stuff up. And my daddy's face turned kind of gray, and he went out in the backyard, and my mother sat down. She just started crying, and, and I, I, it was just odd to me. And this little lady, I'm sure she was just a kind woman, but as a little kid, she was short and she was plump. I mean, very, very plump. And she came over and she hugged me. And my face went like right here. <laughs> and I was trying to breathe and get out of this. I, and she just kept saying, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you. I just wanted away from her and her fat boobs. It was just, oh. It was. So I left the house. And I left in that house the stench, the fighting, the uneasiness, this weird conception of who Jesus was and all those people. I left it all in that house. And I didn't return to any of that for many, many, many years. When I was uh, a teenager, I don't know how old, uh, one of the older girls took me to a West Texas honky-tonk. And I'm telling you, that's where I found life is life really was. I walked in and it smelled very familiar. There was old urine, old, you know, old beer, sawdust, just, you know, crap on the walls. It just smelled, it just, oh, yeah, this is home. This is great. I like it here. And there was a big, huge ball on the, in the ceiling and it was going around and half, had little tiny mirrors on them. Half of them had fallen off and there was colored lights in each corner and they'd hit that thing and it was just excitement. I just took a deep breath and this was it. I, I, it just, I, I can still remember it. And over here was the bar and over here was the tables and all the drunks were lined up over here and we'd watch them and about 11-ish they'd start falling off those stools and coming our way. And I'd pick the hem of my choice and you have to maneuver yourself, you have to be quick, you have to be fast, you know, when you're in one of those places because there's always some blondes. And my grandmother, um, her husband was an alcoholic, duh, and he ran off with this woman. And my grandmother was this devout, 
little Baptist Christian lady. She never said anything except the blonde bitch. <laughs> so I knew blondes were the enemy from I was five years old till today. <laughs> Give me your crappy sign language, I'll tell you. I got a sign for you. <laughs> Closing time, you had to be fast. You had to be fast. You had to see him. You had to get him, and you had to figure out what to do. And and they always played the same song. It's a closing time. Oh God, Just, I got chills right now. <laughs> called sleepwalk. Y'all ever heard of sleepwalk? Oh, man. I heard an alcoholic talk from this podium once when it was Clancy, and he said he'd take a drink and it would go down here and it would go boom, and it would come back up and he would have these muscles and he would be good looking and he was a man and he could just do anything. And when he was saying that, I knew exactly, exactly what he was talking about because I remember the moment it first happened to me. It was during sleepwalks. In the honky-tonks at the closing time, at the last song, you, you, you know, there's things to do. There's, you got to send messages. And so sleepwalk is one of those belly rubbing dances. You know what I'm talking about? I can do it for you. I mean, you're clenched, you remember? You got this arm here and this one's here and you're all up here, just, you know, just, oh, oh, oh. And it goes, near, 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 near. <laughs> you see, you do that one. right here. He's just right here. And he says to me, Sugar, I need you. Yes! Oh, God, yes! I mean, I'm there. I'm right here. He needs me. Do you hear me? Alanons of my type, you know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you, Jeff? Don't you? I mean, they need us. What do you need? I can do it tenfold. And I take them home with me and I show them the delights that they have never known. <laughs> the things the big girls told me to do. And the next day they leave. And it's like, ooh, I didn't plan on that. So you got to do it again. You got to go back to the bar. And you got to, boy, they're all over here and you're over here and you're watching. You check out. See, I like the butts, the jeans. Tight butts, and so I could see them as they say, "You might." <laughs> I could watch them on that stool and see which one I liked, and they'd get up and oh Lord, and it's just you know. I so I went back next Friday night, and uh, 
same thing. You know, you watch Levinish, they come over and you do it, and you watch the blondes, and then you have to do the near, near, and week after week after week. And I, I didn't really, I, I didn't really know what was going on. I didn't realize that every week I took a little bit of my soul and threw it on the dance floor. And the next week I'd take a little bit of my soul and throw it on the dance floor. Um, I was searching for something I didn't know I was searching for because the first night out, the first time I ever danced, I can still remember that as if it was yesterday. Y'all remember your first drink? I remember my first dance. I remember that guy putting his arms around me and he was rubbing my back. I did not know that I needed to be helped. I didn't know that. I didn't know that the human touch would change my life like that. Because in my family, nobody hugged anybody. Nobody said, I love you. Nobody touched you in at night. You were just on your own. Nobody ever rocked me, held me. As many of us have never held and rocked here. We don't know what that means. So that human touch, it just set my whole heart afire. I just wanted that. It made me feel a part of. It was something, if I can just get somebody right here, then I'll be all right. If this hole will be filled up, if I can just get a hymn. If I can keep him, if I can do like the other girls do. I watch them. I know what they do. I saw Doris Day and Rock Hudson movies all the time. <laughs> Y'all are a little slow, but you get it, don't you? <laughs> My first major alcoholic out at the place called the Bloody Bucket. It didn't even open up till 2 a.m., and I was at the bloody bucket, and he walked in, and he had that alcoholic swagger. Y'all know what I'm talking about. I mean, an alcoholic walking through a room just, oh, God. <laughs> he come swaggering in, and, <clears throat> and the little bit, he came over, and he threw a $100 bill down on the table. And he said, here, cutie, walk around on this for a while. Now, I had never seen a $100 bill, and it impressed me. And we danced a few dances, and he left. And that impressed me. You know, he didn't, uh, I didn't snag him, so it's a challenge. And I finally got that thing going, and he was a professional gambler. He was a bootlegger. Lubbock was drive-in. He was just a really a gangster, as much as you can be a gangster in Lubbock County. And there was things went on that, that I, again, just saw in movies. I moved in with him. I became pregnant by this man. And back in the 60s, this was 59, I should say, it was not even done. It just wasn't done. You did not live with anybody and you did not have a child out of wedlock. Not in Texas, not in the Bible Belt. And it was a shameful, shameful thing. And my family was ashamed of me. And um, I didn't go around them very much. And the people that came in and out of our house was gangsters. They were thieves, professionals, boosters is what they call them. I actually met a hit man. Uh, that was his profession. There was guns going off in my house. There was blood all splattered on the walls many times. Some of it was mine. It was a terrible, terrible, terrible place to be. And I had a child, my little daughter Tracy, in that mess. And... When she was born, he told me, I've done the best I can do for you, and that's it. You're going to have to move on. And 
You know, there's things that I learned about myself after I got in this program, and one of them was the isms that make up an Al-Anon. You know, they say there's isms that make up the alcoholism, the isms of the alcoholic. And one of my isms I discovered was the fear of abandonment. This man treated me so terribly bad. So did my second major alcoholic. But those things didn't matter because, see, don't abandon me. You can treat me any way you want to. You can call me names. You can humiliate me out in public. You can make promises and break them. You can do bring other women. You can do all those things. Just don't leave me. If you leave me, I will disappear. That hole will come back out, and I can't stand it. So you can treat me any way you want to. Just don't leave me. So when he did, one of the other isms of my Al-Nalanisms perked its head up, and it was vengefulness. Now, I didn't think I was being vengeful. I always just thought, I'm explaining to you (laughs) how bad you've hurt me. And I would do it by some way I thought might disturb your serenity. (laughs) So I flaunted myself in front of him with a man that he absolutely hated. And I did that with a lot of manipulation. You know, back in the days when it was dry county, usually the girlfriend was in in charge of mixing the drinks. And you mix a little jigger with a big glass of whiskey or Coke or, I mean, water or Coke or whatever. And I learned that if you put two jiggers and then slowly put three jiggers, that you'd get them drunk faster and you could manipulate them the way you wanted to. And I'm not proud of that, let me tell you. Because that stuff's poison, I found out many years later. But I did three jiggers on him and got him to go to the bloody bucket, which it was off limits. It wasn't his hood, you know. And I flaunted myself in front of him so that my daughter's father would be jealous and angry and come get us and take care of us. And it kind of backfired on me. Uh, he took a shotgun and blew that man's head off. Now, I never, never, never expected that to happen. Not ever. That's in the movies. That stuff doesn't happen. Not truly. Not really. But it did. And it hit the newspapers. It hit television. It hit everything. The radios. It hit everything. They were using him as an example. They were going to clean up Lubbock County. Of course, my poor folks. These poor, just, you know, good people. They were just good people. My mother said to me, do not come back to this house. We don't want the neighbors seeing you come in and out. And if anybody asks if you're our daughter, please tell them you're not. And I said, of course, Mama. You know, I, she had been the only life that my mom and dad had due to my brother's illness and having to fight to, through all those years with him. He had to have constant care. The only relief they had was my mother belonged to the Rebecca's and my father belonged to the IWF, Oddfellas. And my mother had been elected a state chairperson of something uh, with the Rebecca's. And when this came out and when this happened, they asked her to step down because of me. And it really hurt my mother. And I felt very guilty and I felt very ashamed and I felt bad. And I said, of course I won't come back, Mama. I understand. And my daddy would sneak around and see me and the baby because he loved that little granddaughter. I thought, I have got to clean up my act. I've got to do something different. There was no God in my life, so I couldn't go there. I had to just change. I had to do something. I felt so dirty. I knew what I was. I was a slut puppy hoe. And I knew it. 
and I was ashamed of myself. So what I did was I went over to the rodeo grounds. Uh, now, it, you know, it was a time when some people were burning the flag and tearing up their draft cards and all that stuff. And the rodeo announcer would always say, cowboys don't burn the flag. And cowboys don't tear up the draft card. And they play the flag. And all everybody stand up and those cowboys take that hat, put it over. And I just, oh, my gosh, this is clean living. This will do it. So I started going to the rodeos. And after the rodeo, instead of honky-tonks, they have a slab of concrete over by the, the rodeo grounds and a fence around it. And all the cowboys lean up against this fence and all the cowgirls lean up against this fence and about 11-ish, all those guys come into the center and at closing time they play sleepwalk and you got to do, you know. As I lovingly say, I just traded a, a holster and a gun for a cowboy hat. That's all I changed. Another cowboy alcoholic. He was the cutest one. He danced the best. He was a bull rider. And he was up for um, RCA. They don't call it that anymore. But he was up for RCA championship bull riding. And if I could be there, if he could be right here and I could be beside him, then I'd be something. So I set my sights for that. And one night we were at the honky-tonk and he was drunk and he was poking me in the chest. And I picked up a great big quart, one of those brown quart beer bottles, busted him upside the head, went to his knees. And that's nothing unusual. We did that all the time. He's, you know, I'd bust him or he'd bust me in the head. I mean, it was all, that's what we did. I ran outside and he ran out and he caught me and he spun me around. He said, you know what? I think you just knocked some sense into me. I think we should get married. <laughs> Now, that didn't come to him out of the clear blue sky. You know I've been planting seeds. Um, and I fed him three to four jiggers until we got married three days later. And I was married. Do you hear me? This slut puppy hoe was married. I never thought I'd be. And I had dreams of what we were going to do. He would mow the yard. I would make cookies. I would make little curtains for the kitchen. Now, it never, we didn't have a yard. I don't like to bake and I don't know how to sew. But this is what I sat and thought about or dream about it and, and have dreams of all these things that's going to go. You know, dreams, dreams. You know how a young woman dreams. And there was no difference. I mean, for the first week, I was a great wife. I fed him and did all the things. I gave him the chicken fried steak and potatoes and gravy and baths and, you know, just everything. And after a week, he was out honky tonk drink. And I was at home, took my position at the window. Sometimes I went out and uh, I'd go search for him. I'd go with him. I would not go with him. I would tear up tables. I would drag him off the dance floors. I would not ignore him. I'd go to a different honky-tonk so he'd know I was over there. Everything in the world that you could think of and absolutely nothing worked. I just wore out. I got pregnant with a little boy, my son, and I thought, this will fix it. This will change. This will make him want to stay home with me. And he just gave me somebody, you know, to hold at the window. That's all that was. (laughs) 
One Thursday, I was sitting in my chair in the den, old green tattered chair. The kids were in the back bedroom staying away from me. They were staying away from me because I was a maniac. There was violence in my home all the time. I needed the violence. I didn't know that so many years in this program, but I needed the violence. I needed to be punished. I wasn't really sure what the crimes were all the time, but I needed to be punished. And my children took much of my abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse. They took it from me, not so much him. He was always out or drunk, and when he was home drunk, they liked it because he was kind to them and sweet and gave them money. But they were in that bedroom back there, really staying away from me. I had two black eyes and I had a busted lip. And it was not any different than any other Thursday. It was just a Thursday. He worked out of town at that time and he was going to be back in at Friday. And I knew I could not do one more weekend. I couldn't do it. I, I was just so done. And I was remember thinking, I wish I could commit suicide for a little while, you know. But who would take my kids? There was absolutely nobody to take those kids. And for whatever reason, I got up, went to the telephone, and I looked at the yellow pages. I looked up Alcoholics Anonymous, and I called it. And this, I was given this woman's number, and I called her, and she said, come over. I got the teenager next door. She come watch the kids. I went up to this woman's house. She was a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. She didn't poo-poo me off because I was just an Al-Anon. She took me into her den, and a few minutes later, her sober alcoholic husband came in and they both sat and talked to me for a long time about the disease of alcoholism and what was going on in my home. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. Y'all were the first people I saw. You were the first people that talked to me and the first people that gave me hope. They, they made arrangements to take me to my first Al-Anon meeting. And I'll never forget it, ever. I don't remember a thing that was said in there. Not a thing. I just remember the room and some of the stuff that was going on. Sheila said it last night. Those women that were behind that, um, we had a little table. They were all dressed up. They had on dresses and, and they had makeup on and their hair was all. They were just beautiful. And I looked around the room and everybody looked kind of clean and dressed up. You know, what I was used to is wearing an old dirty shirt, old dirty, Levi's, the kids, whatever they could find. And my sponsor said to me, anytime you're behind the podium, you have on a dress and you look good. Because new people can't always hear what we say, but they can see what we are. And that's exactly the experience that I found. Y'all were just beautiful to me. I wanted to be here worse than any place I'd ever seen in my life. But I knew if you knew who I was, if you knew where I came from, I wouldn't be welcome. So I just slipped in and sat on the very back row, the very chair next to the door so I could get out. And before they could say the amen, sometimes I'd slip out. I didn't think they'd know I was new. <laughs> Those of them in the back row, we know who you are. <laughs> and they watched me for a few months and two of them decided one would get to this door and one would get that door because I didn't know which one I was going to slip out of. And uh, this woman met me before the Lord's Prayer she went out. And she said some things to me that only she could say that only I could hear. And that is my sponsor of today. She's been my one and only sponsor for these 35 years and I absolutely adore her. She's still a hero to me. 
And I do things in this program to get her approval, and I do, don't do things in this program to get her approval still today. It's not a sick situation. It's just one that I respect her and admire her what she's doing. She is um, just, she has rheumatoid arthritis, and she can barely get around. And I have spent the last two weekends with her at conferences, and I had the privilege of pushing around all last weekend in a wheelchair, and she still goes. She still gets on planes. She still comes. She still does the things because of what was given to her. And I hope I can remember that, especially when I get home Monday night and I'm tired because I've been on flying on a plane all weekend and been gone. I hope I remember just to, you know, what a privilege it is to walk into my meeting because she will be at her meeting. Somebody will pick her up and take her. She bought me a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and she said, read this and we're going to study it so you can know about the disease of alcoholism. And so we did. And I took the steps out of there and my, and I was just, I was just eat up with this thing. I was just eat up with this thing. I loved it. I loved every second of it. And, and I remember I, I was still really new. She called me one day and she said, Jack's going to come by and get you and the kids and I want you to come over for supper. Nobody had ever invited me to their home, especially with two kids. And they came, he came and picked us up. And, I, you know, there's these little teeny tiny things. He pulled up and I got the kids and scooted them out because I you know, didn't want him to wait, didn't want him to pose. He got out of the car, walked around the car, opened the door for me, opened the door for the kids, helped them get in. I sat in, reached the door. He said, I'll get it. And he shut the door. And a perfect gentleman. The first AA meeting I ever went, this alcoholic I was telling you about, he opened the door for me at the, at the meeting hall, and I didn't know what he was doing. He was standing there with the door open looking at me. <laughs> what? I didn't know. That I knew the word gentleman. I'd seen it in movies. I'd been around. But I had never encountered a gentleman in my personal life ever until I got the alcoholic's moment. It was just amazing to me. And I sat at his feet and I listened to him that night. <clears throat> I listened to Jack say how he loved his family. And how he wouldn't do anything to hurt his family, but he could not help it. And I heard other people say that. And I, I went to those meetings and I saw people like my daughter talk and say how they didn't want to do the things that they did and they were doing them. And my heart started changing. And I started seeing people in a whole different way. And the forgiveness came in the ninth step. And the eleventh step brought me a God of my understanding that I knew I'd never had a God and never would have, I don't think, if I hadn't come into this fellowship. And my life changed. They took me to my first conference. There was a lot of that get in the car stuff, you know, you don't you don't ask. We're coming by, get in the car. Okay. <clears throat> Pack some stuff, we're going away for a weekend and they took me to the first conference and it was just the most amazing thing I've ever seen. I know there's many of you that are here for your first conference and welcome. And and what a great experience it is. Those people got up and told their stories and, and the hope that I got, just see them. I just thought they were some kind of stars, you know. They were just, wow. Didn't know how weird they really were. <laughs> <clears throat> I 
I came back and I started going to these meetings and I was just absolutely eat up with it as I said and got happy and this cowboy was looking at me strange and he thought I'd found a man down there and he hired a private detective to watch me. I just think that's the funniest thing. He's gone for days and days and days. You could set your watch by what I did and he hired a private detective. I just still think that's hysterical. He tried AA after I'd been coming for a year. He tried AA for six months. But at the end of that six months, he decided he wasn't really, really, really an alcoholic. He went back to drinking. And he drank for the next 26 years. I stayed with him for seven years after I came in this fellowship. And if you're living with an active husband, I know from whence you come. It's so hard. But I knew if I didn't come to these meetings that there would be no marriage anyway because he kept screaming at me and he tried to stop me from coming and did all kinds of hideous things. And I, I made my way to you people because I knew without you I, would, I wouldn't survive. My kids wouldn't. After seven years of nonviolence, because I learned to keep my mouth shut, as the men told me, he came in one night and he was in a blackout and he started... Being, beating on me and I was getting out of the trying to get out of the bed scrambling and I fell over the foot of the bed and my face bounced up and I looked in the door and so helped me for the very first time ever I saw my two children standing in the door my son I think was about four and Tracy was like ten and I looked at them and they were terrified I saw their faces I saw the, the look in their eyes and they were screaming, both of them, Daddy, please don't hit her anymore. Don't hit her anymore. And he had just walked in the door, walked back the back room, slipped on the light and started hitting me. How could they hear it, wake up, and get in there that quick? My daughter told me many years later, she never went to sleep. She laid there waiting, waiting for the sounds in the night. I'd send her sometimes across the street to spend the night with one of her little girlfriends. And after they'd go to sleep, she'd get to the window and look and watch across the street. So he came in until she could see if I was running out of the house tonight to see if the lights went out. Little kids looking at the sounds of the night. I had no idea. I was so obsessed with my own stuff, I didn't know what was going on with my very own children. I decided to get out of it at that time. When I saw my kid's face, I thought, my God, they're suffering from this disease. I had no earthly idea. I swear to you, I didn't. I sent them to their room. They didn't know anything that was in their room. And we escaped. Now, I'm a high school dropout. I have no education. And in it's strange. Everything started coming my way. I read, a, I read God Calling every morning, and last week it said that God will always do that 11th hour rescue. I loved it. The 11th hour rescue. Don't give up before the miracles, say we. And things just started happening. Next thing I knew, I was enrolled, paid for by, I'd started going back to church. Some of the church people and some of the people in AA, their professions, they were able to help me. And I was enrolled in nursing school before I even knew it. Didn't want to be a nurse. Never thought about being a nurse. Bedpans, excuse me, you know. But I became a nurse. I divorced that cowboy. And I had these two kids, and I was self-supporting through my own contributions for the first time in my life, and I absolutely loved it. My shoulders went up, my head went up. I had a profession. I had two kids. I was doing the best I could with them. 
Now, we were poor, don't think we weren't for a long, long time, especially when I was in school. I was given so much help by the people in AA. We lived in a terrible place, and I drove a terrible car. She and I were talking about cars last night. She had this terrible car when she first got sober. And I had a terrible car. And I was probably one of the happiest I'd ever been. I uh, woke up one morning. You know, you put your kids to bed. They're sweet and loving little kids, and they're just great. And you wake up the next morning, and there's this monster, alateen, alcoholic. You know, you wonder where they come from. I mean, who is this person? And she and I started fighting and screaming and yelling, and it wound up me saying, I hate you, and her saying, I hate you, and it wound up me hitting her, not wanting to, and in program. And the alcoholism was eating us up again. And then my little son, his drunk daddy, came and kidnapped him one night. And I didn't know where he was for three or four days. And then he finally called and said, I'm going to stay with my daddy and just hung up. I'm okay. I'm staying with my daddy. He wanted to be with his daddy no matter how his daddy treated him. And his daddy treated him bad. And my daughter drank and drank and drank, went off to college, quit college, and was off into her alcoholism. I'd heard enough women from this program podium talk about I knew what my daughter was going to, and it killed me to know the life that my daughter was going to suffer. Now, on the other hand, I didn't have those darn kids. And I was cute. And I had some money. And I started buying my own tight jeans and my own cute clothes, and I started going to conventions looking. <laughs> I was in Midland, Texas, and this guy sat down in front of me, and he had these big blue eyes, deep voice, gray at the temples, turned around, put his hand out, and there was diamonds from here to here, and I saw it all. Came back from that convention, he was calling me every single night, and he met me a couple of places, and we started having a long-distance romance. His name was Jim Shaw, and he was from California. So at the end of six months, we were going to um, move me out there. He was, and we was going to see if we could put a, a little life together. And at the end of that six months, he... Alcoholics are such cowards. I'm sorry, I love y'all, but y'all are such cowards. It got to an intimate time in our relationship and he could not handle it. So he just dumped me. Said, sorry, got in touch with my feelings, can't do this, have a good life. (laughs) If I could skip this part, I would, but I can't because my sponsor has given me some instructions on what to say behind this podium, not many. But I was so angry. I was 12 years in this program at that time. I had done everything y'all said to do. I sponsored people. I made coffee. I cleaned up. I did GR crap. I did all that stuff. And it was my turn, you know. It was my turn for some rewards here. This man, I, I loved this man. I loved him. And it was the first love truly that I knew that was a good, decent, the right kind of love, not obsession. I loved him. And I knew, I just knew he loved me. And why would God show me something like that and then yank it away? What is this God deal? If this is it, 
screw God. Screw Him. And I know in this audience, as big as this audience, is, I know there's somebody here that's got a lot of time and you're feeling the same thing. There's this big knot in your stomach and you don't understand what's going on and what's the deal. Screw God. You know, is this brainwashing here? Does it really happen? I don't think so. And I was angry. And my old tapes come up and when you're this mad and you don't know what to do, you go hunt for a man. And I messed around with some men who were trying to get sober because the well men wouldn't have anything to do with me. I, uh, <laughs> I picked on some newcomers. And let me tell you, that is not the place to go. <laughs> Number one, you mess with their lives. They're trying to get sober. One of them left and never came back because he felt so bad because what he was doing, he was trying to get sober. And I felt bad. I felt really bad. I didn't want a 13th step. It's disgusting. And if you're thinking about it, please don't do it. You will. It's a scar that you will carry with you from here on out. I should have been asked to leave the program. I really should have. But nobody did. There was those who would have if they could have. But they didn't. And I remember that to this day, that, that I was just as sick in here as I was out there. And I have to remember that. And I have to try not to do those actions. And one of the guys that I was messing with snitched to my sponsor because there was another guy that he found out about. And my sponsor got me. We were at a conference, and she got me. And let me tell you, I had rather been peeled by a potato peeler than have this conversation with her because she made me go talk to Jack. And when I was talking with her, I was saying, you know, it's not that I'm, I'm mad at Jim. It's just that I'm mad at men. And I, it, it, God didn't help me. God has betrayed me. She said, Benoit, do you think you ever betrayed God? And that, for whatever reason, that hit, that struck. I knew what she was saying. And then I said something to her that it had been my deepest, darkest secret that I was never going to share with anybody or tell anybody. It was take it to the grave stuff. I said, Pat, you don't understand. I am unlovable. I don't know why. But I am. My parents don't love me. My children don't love me. Nobody loves me. Not really. You like me and, you know, I'm, I'm fun to be around for a while and I'm okay for a while. But when you get to the core of me, there's nothing there. I am unlovable. I wish I could change it. I wish I knew what it was. But it's there. And she looked at me for a while and she said, Oh, Benoit, that's not so. She said, I love you just the way you are. And if I love you like that, what kind of love do you think God has for you? That it's so immense we can't even think about it. She reached over and she got me and she pulled my head over on her chest and she rocked me. And she said, I love you. God loves you. And I started that sobbing, you know, that comes from your toes and just comes out where you just make a fool of yourself. My snot was all over, you know. <laughs> And I said later, going home, God, if you would just give me the opportunity to come back in these rooms and try to make this right, I will give you everything I have and anything that I am from here on out. And I have tried to do that since that day. Whatever, whatever you need, if I can do it, I will. 
And right after that, Jim Shaw came back into my life. I met him again at the same convention. He was moved from California to, to Oklahoma. And he stopped there to deliver a dress for me. I had uh, burned a hole in a dress when I was out in California, and he was going to have it fixed for me. And he had kept, isn't that strange, he kept that dress for two years. I hadn't seen him in two years. And he dropped by to give me that dress. Now I knew exactly how I was going to do this. I knew he was there. Everybody was saying, he's here, he's here, he's here, here. I talked to my sponsor, and I said, he wants to give me my dress. And uh, he, she said, well, go get your dress, and that's it. And you know what he's capable of? Be very careful. <laughs> so after the meeting Friday night, I went up to his room, and I had it all planned. I was going to say, thank you very much for returning my dress. It's very nice of you. I hope you have a good convention. I knocked on the door and he came to the door and he said, hi, I said, hi, I said, you want Coke? Yeah. <laughs> and this time I snagged him. I got him. And with him came two children, two drunks, duh, Sheila and Jimmy. And I had Tracy and Duke. And they were, of course, all grown and gone and all drinking and... We moved to Norman, Oklahoma, we put a life together, and it was just great. We had the best time. We had a lot of fun. Now, I did not know what it was like to live with a sober man. I'd seen y'all come in, you couples. I saw you come in, sweet you were to each other, and I saw you leave, sweet to each other. I just didn't know what went on in the car, you know, back and forth. (laughs) So we really had to hammer out a marriage, and it wasn't easy. It was not easy. We could clear a room in 10 seconds, you know, because he's a rager and I'm a rager. And my sponsor said she wouldn't take a million dollars for us. No, she wouldn't take a nickel for us and she wouldn't give a million bucks. Wouldn't take a million bucks for two people like us. You just, ugh. My daughter called me. She tried to commit suicide. She was drunk. And I said, well, I'll be in Lubbock next week for homecoming. Uh, Meet me there. She met me there. Um, she went to the Saturday night meeting. She heard a speaker and decided she might be an alcoholic and started going to meetings. Shortly thereafter, as you heard last night, Sheila called. She said, tell my dad. I said, no, wait just a minute. He's in the fifth step. When he gets through, we'll have, I'll have him call you. And she said, no, just, just tell him that uh, I'm putting Brad in the foster home. I'm going to walk, walk the streets because I don't know what else to do. Sheila had been raised in foster homes. So that's what she thought you did with children. You put them in foster homes. I said, well, we'll call you back. We did call back. And Jim was furious. He was just furious. I said, let's send for her. I said, I really do believe this is a cry for help that she doesn't even know she's crying, Jim. We were terrible parents. Let's help this kid out. Send her a ticket. If I send her a ticket, she'll bring that kid back here and dump him. I don't want that kid. You know, there was a little kid involved at this time. I said, give her a one-way ticket. We've got to do this. We were terrible parents. So we did. We sent her a ticket. She came back. She got off that plane. She had a box with some twine on it and a screaming kid. Screaming kid. He cried all the way back. It took Jim about two days to get hooked by that kid, you know, two days. The second morning, I think it was, I went into Sheila's room. Sheila was laying on the bed 
when she had put Brad to sleep. She was curled up in the fetal position, like a little kid. And she was pale. And Brad was laying there just, you know, had no clothes. He was a tattered little kid. And I stood at the foot of that bed and I said, oh God, if I can help these, this, this woman, please let me. Please let me help her where I couldn't help my own daughter. And it was just magnificent. We went home in a few months to get my daughter her one-year cake. And Sheila went with us with six months of sobriety. We went there into my mother's house, and my niece showed up, drunk, 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 drunk. And Sheila and my daughter, 12-step, my niece. And the thrill of that, the thrill of that was that my brother had not spoken to me in 26 years because of my shenanigans. And we were 12-stepping his daughter. It just made me feel so good. My brother never found sobriety. He killed himself, drunk. And the thing that fills my heart with that, and he wouldn't let me make amends to him, the thing that thrills my heart with it is my girls have helped save his daughter's life. Sheila is now my niece's sponsor. My niece will have five years. My daughter, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. My daughter uh, got sober for 10 years. She met a him on AA campus. They got pregnant. They got married. They got divorced. And Jim and I got them. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it was our pleasure. We raised Brad for a few first few years of his life. Brad, Brad was my first grandbaby. Brad has my heart. Always has. Always will. You know what he does? He's such a little alcoholic. He said, uh, he came and he said, come here, I want to show you my, my favorite box things. So I went into his room and he had this box that his favorite things were in. He opened up the box and there was an empty bottle of my perfume that I had worn for 20 years. He'd found it in the trash can. He said, I got it out of the trash can and when I miss you now, I smell it. And we don't even know where he is today. He's a drunk. I hate alcoholism, but I love that little alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> Trace had that 10 years, and my she had a little granddaughter, Chardonnay, that has my heart. And she sent her back east to live with her daddy. I didn't know it till it was all done. We'd help raise this kid. This is the way Jim and I, and Jim said... I was from the podium all the time. He said, I'm a lousy, lousy daddy, but God's given me a second chance, and I've been a really good granddad. He took Brad out, and he made snowmen with him. This big old huge man, you know, he's very macho, let me tell you. He went to Chardet School and carved pumpkins for the little kitties. He put on a Santa Claus suit and went to the school. I mean, this is this big, macho, fabulous grandpa. And she sent this daughter away, and Jim didn't speak to her for three months. But Tracy could not be a mother. She could not be a mother. And then a few weeks later, she got drunk and committed, tried to commit suicide again. She got two and a half years sober and moved over to Phoenix and was doing really well. And she gave me a call one day and she said, Are you sitting down? Dad, you do not want to hear, Are you sitting down from, from an alcoholic, do you? No. 
She said, I ran off to Las Vegas last night and got married. I said, to who? I didn't even know she'd date anybody. And he was this tall, lanky kid that I'd known him all his life. He was from Texas. And I said, well, are y'all going to live in Phoenix or are you going to live in Texas? He said, well, she said, we've got to get back to Texas before his parole officer finds out he's out of town. And I knew what was coming. I mean, I knew what was coming. And a few months later, she got drunk again. She called me. She said, I'm going to come to Dallas where you're going to be speaking. And I just need to warn you what I look like. I have two black eyes and busted lip and scarves, stitches across my face. So she came. And, um, you know, I have done the steps on my children, on all of them. And I've asked forgiveness from them. But I believe that my heart has scars. It has scars from my motherhood. And every now and then those scars, they kind of pulsate, you know? And they hurt. Not that I hadn't taken the actions, because I have, but those scars are there. And I looked at my daughter, and my, that scar was pulsating. And Sheila and the Norman, the Norman Bunch, this fabulous group, took my daughter back to Austin, packed her up, and took her to Norman, Oklahoma. And she got sober there. And then she moved out to San Diego, and she's sober today. She has five and a half years of sobriety. Thank you. Jim and I were doing great in L.A., and we went out to Palm Springs and bought a home out there. We were going to retire out there. And he came in one day, and he says, you know, my shoulder's just killing me. I said, well, won't you go in, blah, blah, blah. I just had surgery. And and just stay there until I find out what's wrong with you. Next weekend he came in, his eyes were weird, and I said, let's go back. So we went back to the doctor, and they pulled me out in the hall and said, your husband has cancer. And three months later, he was dead. And it's amazing. I mean, I love y'all so much. You know, when one of us is wounded, how people come, it's just amazing. And people were all over us. And one night, it was 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, and I was, you know, I couldn't sleep, and I was crying. And he came in. And he said, why are you crying, honey? And I said, I'm just going to miss you so much, I can't stand it. And he said, well, you want me to figure out a way to take you with me? (laughs) I said, I don't think I'm going to miss you that much. And he pulled me up and he put his arms around me and he stood there and he said a prayer for me. He's God, please take care of my baby. Keep her secure and warm and take care of her. And that's the way it was those three months. We laughed. You know, the guys would sneak in and sneak him out the back door and take him to play golf. And I told him they couldn't go, he couldn't go, couldn't go. And they'd wave as they take him off. And he died with dignity and fun. And he knew where he was going and it was, you know, it was okay. And I miss him to this day. Sometimes it hurts so bad I can't believe it. But then I've been taken care of ever since. I've been taken care of. We were embezzled. There was nothing. I lost my home. I lost. There was nothing. I was just standing down the street with nothing practically. And I was wounded. And y'all came and you protected me all this time. And I have done fine. Let me tell you about my favorite, favorite moment. The last few years. Favorite moment. 
Sheila's husband is a builder, and he built them this beautiful home. It's just gorgeous. Two-story, looks like a mansion. And she has a Christmas party for the people she sponsors every year. And there was like 90 women there, and they had just moved into this place. I mean, they just moved in two weeks prior to this. No, a week before. Tuesday, excuse me. Tuesday, and it was Friday that was a party. Those girls swarmed that house. They had everything put up. There was lights everywhere, candles, trees, you know, with sparkles. And it was glowing. It was a fireplace. And they had Christmas music on. Just beautiful. Those women were all dressed up in green velvet and red velvet and their bling bling and their hair was all done. It was just glowing. I was sitting on the couch and the minute my niece walked through. God, she looks beautiful tonight. She looks fabulous. Second later, my daughter walked through and she was taking somebody some drinks and I said, oh my God, look how gorgeous she is. And then Sheila came down and sat beside me. She said, Mom, are you having a good time? I said, I'm overblessed and overpaid, honey. My women, my girls looked magnificent. There was 89 women in that room with sobriety. How in the world can I thank you for that? I mean, how can I do that? I don't know. A couple of weeks ago, I got fired from my job of 14 years. New corporation picked us up, you know, and cleaned us out. Now, these kids that I had harmed all their lives, my daughter called and said, Well, we figured out we want you to come live with us, and we're going to take care of you for that, and then you can go stay with Sheila for a little while. And then my son called and said, Come up here. Sheila calls and said, I'm looking for a house. These are the lives of kids that I destroyed, and they want me. They're trying to help me. Now, how can I thank you for that? Jimmy Jr., whom we did not know where he was or anything, gave me a Mother's Day card. He said, I hope that you will forgive me for being so standoffish, but, you know, I can't, I haven't been able to trust women, but now I'm trusting you. I wish you had been my mom from the beginning. And I called him, and I thanked him for that card, and I said, that was so sweet. He said, I really do mean it. And I said, well, Jimmy, I wasn't there in the beginning, but I guarantee you I'll be there to the end. Thursday night when I got home from my meeting last Thursday my birthday and on my porch was this gorgeous bouquet of flowers. He had come by, left them on my porch, said, Happy birthday, Mom. We love you, Jimmy and Sheila. How can I thank you for that? I mean, you're my life. You're my life. You, you hold me up when I'm wounded. You're, I mean, I, there's no far, there's no tired, there's no nothing for you. My life is yours and, and you give it to me. There was a man in my part of the country named Bob White, and he was just, you know, one of those giants. I know you've got a giant around here. And he, he spoke at the Canyon Conference that Jim started, and unbeknownst to us, it was his last talk. He had cancer, and a few months later, he died. And in that talk, he said, we say the Lord's Prayer after every meeting, and it starts off with our Father. And then it says the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. He said any school kid can figure out if there's a kingdom, it's the Father, then that makes you a prince and a princess of the kingdom. Yeah. He said, claim your heritage. Treat each other like prince and princes, like royalty. He said, and the power is in these rooms. We don't even see it sometimes, but it's in this room. And the glory is God. And I sat there and I thought, absolutely. 
I've always had trouble with my fourth. And I said, absolutely. I'm a child of the king and I'm going to claim it. I am Princess Benoit. I'm a child of the king. You have given me that heritage and I will forever be grateful. Thank you.